Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. I'm your host, Becca Skutek, and I am joined by the lovely Dominic Midori Davis. Are you excited for this conversation today? I know you are. I'm very excited for this conversation. We're chatting with a company today that deals with grocery logistics, which is something I am weirdly passionate about. Dom, do you ever think about grocery logistics or are you normal? I, I listen, I have never thought about grocery logistics at all. I have no idea what happens when I leave the store. Well, if anyone is curious and wants to fall down this rabbit hole, there's this lovely book called The Secret Life of Groceries by Benjamin Lohr that talks about both the history of grocery stores here in the U.S. as well as what supply chain looks like, what the long haul truckers look like, and sort of a lot of stuff that we kind of get into today, one of which being produce. Produce is one of the most interesting parts of the grocery store logistics because when we buy produce at the store regularly, it has to look perfect. It has to fit certain specs that have absolutely nothing to do with how it tastes. And it all is kept in this weird limbo. And then when they need produce at the store, they all flash ripen it and send it. It's kind of crazy. What you're saying is like produce has to conform to our like Western standards of being like it has to be perfect before it can be presented and they put it in a box and then they show it off and then produce are just like us, I guess. I know. Kind of. And this is why grocery store companies have such tight margins because they have to do this whole show and tell of, oh, this is the perfect pear. This is the best cucumber. When in reality, it's like these companies struggle to make money. So the fact that they're doing this is crazy. And the founder we're talking to today knows that all too well. Starting a company in the produce space, he had to raise money almost immediately. Racked up over $120,000 in credit card debt trying to get this off the ground right from the start. I know this is... This space is just, the margins are so low. It's expensive and it's messy, but I mean, hey, we got it eat. <laughs> it has to happen. But I guess that's why companies like this are so amazing because he takes those rejected vegetables. He takes, I guess, not the ugly ones, the different ones. And, you know, he they're perfectly fine to eat. So this was actually like a brilliant way to tap into a white space, I guess. If you haven't figured out who we're talking to today on the show, we have Abi Ramesh, the founder and CEO of Misfits Market, which is the online grocery store that takes these ugly or, as Dom said, different looking produce from farms in surplus and sells them to people who don't mind eating these different produce. Hey, Abi, how's it going? I am doing well. How are you? Oh, you know, hanging in there. Enjoying this nice fall weather in New York. Where are you based? In Philly. So probably pretty similar fall weather. Are you a Phillies fan? I don't really watch. I'm, I'm an Eagles fan I've become, but I didn't really watch sports until recently. Oh, well. But I know the Phillies. Are, yeah, they're yeah. doing well. I was going to say yeah. you're in a good position if you are a baseball fan. Yep. Well, cool. I think probably a good place to get started. Although we probably do have some listeners who are familiar with Misfits. But maybe if you want to start by telling us a little bit about the company and how you came to that idea to begin with. Yes. So I launched Misfits about five years ago. It took almost exactly five years. It was in the fall of, of 2018. The inspiration for Misfits came from, call it two sources. One, in a previous life, I worked in finance, the big bad world of finance. I spent some time on cold storage and food transportation and started to get an initial understanding from like the supply chain side of the world, how much food goes to waste in the logistics part of our supply chain. And, you know, I remember reading about and, and seeing examples that were told to me about, you know, a truckload of strawberries, like $30,000 of strawberries that would arrive to a grocery store destination 
35 minutes late or an hour late, and they'd have to dump it all because it was too late. They found a last minute supplier. And so that truck had to turn around and go somewhere else, take it to a landfill. That wasn't just a one-off example. There are tons of those. So that was kind of right. one inspiration. And then I actually, you know, as I got more and more interested in this problem, I ended up speaking to a farmer at an apple orchard. And I was like, hey, what do you do with all these apples that fall off the trees? No one's picking them. There's hundreds on the ground. And he was like, well, those are our misfit apples. There's not a home for them. So we end up kind of putting them in this cold storage. We try to donate some. We press them from cider, but a lot of them were thrown away. So that was kind of the, the light bulb moment that I talk about often where I was like, okay, I am two hours from where I live in Philadelphia. There's a bunch of apples on the ground. Like I'm going to buy these and I'm going to see if I can figure out a way to sell them and see what price that I'm going to get for them. So I started Misfits by kind of jumping into it and actually like purchasing products from farmers that they would be throwing out. And then it kind of snowballed from there in a good way. And we started expanding our assortment. And I got in contact with a bunch of other farms, many of whom were introduced to me by that first farmer. And that was sort of like the original kind of chaotic inception story for Misfits. Oh my, how do you bootstrap a company like this? Because every time like companies in the food space, I always want to know, like, how did it initially start? Because I know that it's hard and also expensive. It is hard and expensive. And and I would say, I don't even know if I would call my story a bootstrap story. It was in the very early days, but I very quickly realized I would need external capital. I also did some really foolish things, personal financial wise. I, I ended up, I remember in the early days, I built the website myself, so I didn't spend money on that. I was storing, our first warehouse was my apartment. So I'd like go buy all of this food. I bought an extra fridge and I just like put all of the produce there. So I didn't have a warehouse in the, in the early days. But as we started spending money on customer acquisition on Facebook and Google and all these places, I just started racking up debt on my credit cards, which people look at that and they're like, oh, that's very cool that you did that as an entrepreneur. Like it was probably really foolish of me to do that because if for whatever reason this hadn't worked out, I would have been in a lot of financial trouble. So I had multiple credit cards that I was racking up, uh, you know, hitting the limits on. But that, you know, I would say that was like two months, two and a half months. Then once we got to a point where, you know, I needed an actual warehouse to rent space, I needed cold storage, I needed a truck supply to go move things around. I did not bootstrap and I, and I ended up raising outside capital probably like two and a half months into starting the business. And I'm definitely curious, you mentioned it all kind of started with that first farm agreeing to let you buy some of their quote unquote misfit produce. But because the system wasn't working in that way already, it sounds like it was easy for you to start working with other farms. Easy in air quotes, nothing building a startup is easy. But how did farms react when you did reach out and were like, hey, like that stuff you're going to throw out that probably bothers you that you throw out? Like, I actually think I might have a solution. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because at first farms didn't really even know what I was talking about and like what I was referring to. And so I'd use all like I try to use jargon and be like, oh, you're X grade product or this. And they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I had to physically go to a lot of these places for the first couple of weeks, because on the phone, you know, it's hard to explain what you're looking for. And it's hard for them to explain the other way. And oh, by the way, a lot of the farms that I was working with in the early days, they were Amish farms, and they don't have phones or cell phones that they carry with them. So they have a landline that's in the barn that they have access to for like an hour a day. So my solution was, I'm going to drive. So I literally drove from farm to farm, you know, on the weekends, and I would essentially say, hey, is there produce that you wish you could sell that you're not selling today? And you have to throw out, but you you think it's fine quality for people to consume and kind of frame that way. A lot of them are like, yeah, sure. Come to this shed, come to this cooler unit, like look at all this food. And then surprisingly, like they were shocked that I wanted to buy it. Mm. I think a lot of them were like, what are you going to do with like this, you know, six crates of butternut squash that are shaped oddly? And I was like, well, I'm going to figure out a way to sell it to other people. And they were like, well, I don't know if people will buy it. So getting it in with the farmers in the early days was very easy because they had all the supply. 
they were wasting money on it because they have to go store it, they have to harvest it. And so I was essentially offering them a solution and a, and a revenue stream, which I think was welcome. Flipping to the other side, the customer side, because you just mentioned it a little bit as well. Obviously, of course, grocery stores carry this perfect image of all this different produce because they think people are more likely to buy it. So was it hard at first to sell to consumers or is that maybe like a disconnect between grocery marketing and how consumers actually feel about buying food? We had a lot of education work to do in the early days. We still do, candidly. Part of it is when folks think about the idea of misfit produce or ugly produce, there is still the misconception that there's something wrong with it. Mm. And that misconception existed very much so five years ago. I think we have done a lot, I believe, in terms of educating the consumer that misfit produce does not equal bad produce, does not equal rotten produce, does not equal damaged produce. Folks in the industry like Imperfect Foods that we recently acquired, they've done a lot to educate the consumer as well. But I would still say the average grocery consumer still doesn't know what that is and still probably has a, a little bit of a negative connotation around the word ugly produce or misfit produce. And that very much so was the case five years ago. So we had to do a lot of education. We used our social media platforms for that. We partnered with folks like Bobby Flay, who's a celebrity chef, who people, you know, are like, hey, if Bobby Flay is going to do something, it's definitely high quality. So let me let me listen to him. So we had to do a lot along the way to get people over that initial hump of mm, ugly produce sounds like there's something actually wrong with it. But eventually we got them there. And what we found was no matter how much storytelling we did, how much blog education, getting a box is the thing that convinces folks the easiest because you get a box, you open it up, you're like, this stuff's actually totally fine to consume. There's not like something fundamentally wrong with the piece of produce. But I think that reaction only comes when you have the box sitting in front of you. Yeah, like because I've never used Misfit Market. So I'm wondering, like, how ugly is the produce that people are like, I would not buy this? Like, how ugly is it? It varies. There's a spectrum of ugly. <laughs> you, can, you can go from a lot of produce that you can't even tell. And to be fair, some of that's because some of our misfit produce is actually not aesthetically different. It's that there was like, there's a surplus of a certain commodity, you know, they're an overabundant harvest. That's why it's misfit. So then it's the exact same items, just in, in excess. But you'll find things where you'll have apples, we'll have like gala or honey crisp apples where people are used to seeing these like huge gala apples sitting on the grocery store shelves. You know, we'll have some that are maybe a standard deviation smaller than that a couple inches smaller in, in diameter. And when you get that in the box, you're not really going to notice. You're not going to be like, oh, that gal apple's ugly. Maybe it's a little smaller than what you've seen, but that's part of it. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we'll have like squash that are crazy shapes and sizes. We'll have like the carrots and root vegetables, especially. They have a reputation for being kind of the uglier produce that we sell. I think those are the ones, one of our first logos back in the day was a twisted carrot, like two carrots that like intertwine. So things like that, they pull that out of the bunch before they put the carrots on the shelf of the grocery store. Same thing with the squash that's like curved in a weird way. So I think those are the ones where, you know, you'll pick it up out of the box. You're like, wow, that actually looks ugly. What's interesting though, is over time, people stopped using the word ugly because it's not like, it's just different looking. It's not like a negative, oh, it's, it, it, it looks bad. It's actually just like, it looks very different from the carrots that I normally get. I love how this is all just like teaching people to like love how things come. Like, I don't know, like it's just something very wholesome about it, but also something very indicative of society that we're just like going around saying, ew, that carrot is ugly. When it's like, it's not ugly, it's just different. Yes, it's interesting because the word ugly, this whole movement that began was around the phrase ugly produce, and therefore it stuck. And, you know, we still use it every once in a while, although we've been trying to push away from the word ugly, because though people 
kind of recognize that as part of this movement. Like it is not really ugly. It's just different. You know, ugly is very much so it's got a negative. It's bad looking. This just looks different. Something I wanted to ask you about, partially because I have spent way too much time reading about the logistics of like the grocery industry. I just find it really fascinating. So I've read some books about grocery stores and how that all works. And from that, I know logistics are really, really difficult. And margins are typically pretty low. So there isn't a great, those aren't like the best looking stats when you look at or evaluating a business that's going to scale and going to grow. So how do you guys think about that for yourselves and sort of being able to bring this new innovative product to essentially the grocery market and make it work in a space that is traditionally decently hard to succeed in? Yeah, we, um, I was joking with some of our early investors Recently, and I was like, you know, five years ago, we were trying to get this company off the ground. And we were essentially saying we're going into the hardest industry there is, grocery. We're going to layer on e-commerce logistics, which is even harder. And we're going to try to make it like a value play and try to make people save money on what is already a low-cost, low-margin, cutthroat industry. Why do we do that? Like, that just sounds kind of crazy when you think about it in hindsight. So definitely the case. Like, grocery is a notoriously challenging industry low margin perishables as well. Like when you look at the spoilage that happens in the grocery industry, it's massive because it's super hard to forecast. If you can't forecast your strawberries and bananas properly, you're going to lose a ton of them because they don't have a ton of shelf life. Logistics are challenging. Our simple thesis on this was because it's so hard, fewer people are going to try to do it. (laughs) And if we're willing to do the hard stuff that others are not willing to do, that in and of itself is probably a competitive advantage over time. We're going to need to raise a lot of capital. We kind of knew that from day one because this is not something you can bootstrap and do the tiny amount of capital. So we're going to need to raise a bunch of capital. This is going to be operationally intensive. Let's like accept that because that's part of the game we're playing. But if we're willing to do the hard things that other people haven't been willing to do, we think we can build something with a real competitive advantage and moat. And when I think about kind of where the business is today and, and, and where we've come, I think that what we have built, I'm biased, obviously, but I think what we've built over the past five years will be really hard for someone else to come and build this. We have a like a perishable multi-temperature supply chain that can handle frozen, can handle fresh across multi-temperatures, and can handle regular non-temperature regulated goods. We bring that into our own fulfillment centers. We probably have, you know, somewhere close to a million square feet of fulfillment center space across the country. We can pack all that into a single box and get it out to the consumer. And we can do that in a way that is unit economics profitable on, a, on an order basis, which I don't think anyone in the grocery industry has done scalably, even thinking back to the web van era. So I think our take on it in the early days was like, this is going to be really tough, like brutally challenging, but we're willing to do it as long as we accept operationally intensive, going to be capital intensive, and it's going to take some time. I think grocery, unlike other spaces, isn't a place where you can kind of, kind of go innovate in six months or 12 months and MVP your way to a great product. You need to be willing to commit and think on a very different, longer time horizon than everyone else. And you spoke a little bit about how when you first approached farmers, they didn't quite understand. But when you first approached investors, did they also not understand or did they completely get what you were trying to do? It was a mixed bag, I would say. I had the benefit of having been on the investor side in my previous, you know, when I used to work before this in in finance. The benefit of that was I had a good sense of what questions they'd ask, where they try to poke holes, and what the key areas of diligence would be when someone looked at our business. And so I was able to, I think, go out and pitch in a very sort of deliberate way and, and talk about those points up front. That being said, there were a lot of investors in the early days that were basically like, look, grocery plus online, no way. 
never. Capital intensive, asset heavy, challenging to do. We're not touching it. And there, you know, if I could put percentage, probably like 60, 70% of investors fell in that bucket. But then there was probably a third of investors who looked at this category and they fully bought my vision, which was no one's innovated in this category in a very long time. And you guys have seen some of the the industry data points, but when you look at e-commerce penetration, digital penetration in every category out there, it is like 30, 40, 50%. Amazon has done it tremendously well with clothing, with electronics. Healthcare is now heavily digitized now. The one area that is lagging every other vertical in e-commerce penetration is grocery. And that's now, five years ago, is even more so the case. And so the simple thesis of when you look at industry trends and sort of macro trends and look at other countries as well, where grocery penetration, e-commerce penetration has grown a lot, you have to buy the fact that grocery is, there's a ton of white space when it comes to online grocery. Yes, it's going to be hard, but people aren't tackling it. And so we believe we can build something special here and, and, and get that white space. That was the pitch that I think investors that saw that and believe that were a lot more willing to kind of come on board and go look at our decks and go through our model. And, and I frankly sort of selected those, you know, I, I kind of biased towards those investors. So I was like, look, if you don't buy, if you're going to have kind of an allergic immediate reaction to online grocery and grocery, it's not even worth going down that rabbit hole. Right. Let's just focus on the folks that like believe in the, the tailwinds of, of grocery and online grocery. And we talked a little bit earlier about getting consumers interested in buying the product itself, but you bring up a good point of when you guys got started, not a lot of people were buying this kind of stuff online in general, just regardless of what it looked like or where it was coming from. And how did you guys work to do that, that change in consumer behavior to get people even comfortable? Because you probably got a lot of customers who not only were buying your product online for the first time, but were buying groceries online for the first time. How did you guys work through that? Yeah, you know, we had a, that's it, a horrible thing for the world, but something that accelerated that for us, which is COVID. You know, thinking about when we launched the business, it was late 2018, almost into 2019 by the time we got up and running and it was funded. A year in, a year into Misfits Market, COVID happened. So as we were starting to think about that problem that you're describing, which is how do we increase adoption of online grocery in general? And then how do we increase adoption of kind of the misfit produce out of the world, the online adoption piece sort of like was handed to us, unfortunately, mm. because of COVID. And so when COVID happened, we were barely a year and change old and every major grocery store either shut down or had significantly limited hours, as you guys well know. And so there was a massive shift towards online delivery services. And we could not handle the number of signups during the first like month and a half of the COVID lockdowns. We shut off our website. We we're like, we can't take any new customers. And so it was a, a challenging few months, both from a customer perspective and like internally for us to manage this with our warehouse workers. And we had instances of COVID. We had to go deal with all of those things. But the silver lining behind all that was like online grocery adoption significantly accelerated as a result of COVID lockdowns and people sort of being forced to order online. That was like the big accelerant, to be honest. Like, I can't take any credit for that. I think it was just sort of these unfortunate macro factors that resulted in that. But now I think in, in the post-COVID world we're in now, there's still a ton of white space. When you look at grocery, the percentage of groceries that are bought online is like 13%. 14%. In other categories, that number is like 40 or 50. So there's still a ton of white space here. And I think now it's really about, can you get the right assortment to someone in a convenient way at a good price? Because if those three things can't get met, then it's hard for someone to do online grocery versus to go to the store. There aren't a ton of solutions to do all of those things. There's things that give you a convenient solution, but you're going to pay a pretty big premium to get it delivered to your doorstep. There's things that will give you a good deal, 
but you're making a ton of trade-offs for that deal. And so we're trying to see if we can bridge that gap here. And I want to talk a little bit about you. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? And like, did you ever think one day you would own basically a, a grocery business? Uh, I'll start with the, the second part. I never imagined I would be in this space and own a grocery business. I have always had an entrepreneurial bug, I guess, for lack of a better word. Going back to my middle school, high school years, I used to, you know, I did not have an allowance. My parents were just like, if you want to do stuff and pay for stuff, you make your own money and figure it out. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to, I've told this story a couple of times, but I used to go and purchase used textbooks and required reading books from my classmates and friends because I was always shocked that like, you'd have to buy a book for summer reading, half the students wouldn't read it. And then that was it. The book's like useless. So I'd go buy those books for 20 cents on the dollar and then go sell them back on Amazon's marketplace for 70 cents on the dollar to use book. So I used to do things like that just to like make money in high school. And then I've probably unsuccessfully tried to launch 20 different companies throughout my college years and post-college years across a variety of industries. I am a self-taught, really bad, but self-taught software engineer. So I know how to write you know, a little bit of code here and there. So I have a hodgepodge of skills that were all developed around this idea of like, I want to go build something and I want to be good enough at a lot of these things to be dangerous, which ended up working well for Misfits where like I built the first version of the website. I used some of my like supply chain logistics knowledge to get that part off the ground. I have a finance background, so I know how to think about financial modeling for startups. So all of that helped me. And I've always wanted to do things, but you know, frankly, Misfits was probably the, the first startup that really started the attraction quickly and worked from the early days. But I was industry agnostic and I certainly never expected to be in grocery. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. And we have to ask because you put out there that you had probably 20 ideas that didn't work. What was your worst idea looking back on it? Obviously, probably seems like a good idea at the time. My worst idea it was a company that, and by the way, I, I, this was a product that I ended up building and launching. It was a company that allowed you to shop on social media. Mm. Basically, if you saw a photo of a pair of Nike shoes on Facebook, for example, you could just type the word buy and your size in the comments and it would buy it for you. You know, I was working on it with a very close friend of mine. He's still one of my best friends. And we were like, why isn't everyone, everyone's on social media all the time. Why aren't they also just like buying through comments? And so, you know, we created this infrastructure where someone could like link their credit card information, their address on the back end. And as long as you were signed up on that, you could just comment and buy. As you can imagine, like that's not a natural way for, you know, you could just click and people want to browse and they want to shop still. So the idea of shopping through comments never took off. And I think it was just us being a little bit naive about consumer behavior back in the day. But I think that was, I don't know, that feels like probably one of the one of the worst ideas. A lot of the ideas, by the way, I don't think they were bad ideas. We just did not stick to them for long enough. One of the platforms that I worked on was like a personal style engine for guys. The idea being guys want to buy clothes and look good in clothes, but they hate shopping. So can you essentially like have them go through a quiz, sign up on the quiz, and then we kind of curate clothes for them every week or every month. And then we're like, this is a horrible idea. It's not working. And then companies like Stitch Fix and a few others like took off and have done a pretty decent job of getting ideas like that off the ground. So so I think a, a lot of the, the companies were just like myself and some of the folks I was working with, we were just, we quit a little bit too early. But I think the comment to buy one was just maybe a bad idea. It is funny to think about though now, because I feel like people do buy a lot off of social media, especially like post-pandemic. Not in that way, of course, but it is interesting to think if you had stuck with that one, if maybe that would have picked up. 
or pivoted to like how people do it now. Totally. Yeah. Maybe like native shopping would have taken a different form than like comment shopping. There's probably another way of purchasing on these platforms. Yeah. And are you with Misfits? Are you a solo founder technically? Yes. And what is that like? We actually, we just got off from talking with someone where it's a co-founding team of four, which we were like, that seems like a lot of co-founders. But on the other hand, being a solo founder, of course, has its own challenges, but also benefits on the other end. Like, how has it been taking this company from idea to where it's at now, being the sole person behind it? Not including the employees, of course, but... Yeah, no, I'll I'll say a couple of things about that. One, I've never held that there's like a right answer to this question. And I've had folks ask me before, like, you know, who are trying to start a company, like, should I have a co-founder, should I not? And I think it's a very personal sort of decision and question. And I've worked on startups before with co-founders, and I've really liked it. I've worked on startups with co-founders before, but it's been challenging because we'd step on each other's toes. Ultimately, I think what I realized about Misfits was... In the early days, I felt I had kind of the fundamental skills to kind of get it off the ground and didn't need some people say like, oh, I need a technical co-founder because I need I can't write code or I need a supply chain co-founder. And when I was getting off the ground, I just didn't feel the need to go get someone else to help me with that stuff. And I had kind of do enough again by myself to get it off the ground. I wasn't an expert, but but enough. And then I hired folks early to the team that were experts in those areas that could get it, get it off the ground. So though I don't have the same call it like support structure of a founding team or a co-founder, I do feel like a lot of the early employees that I hired into Misfits in the first six months or eight months, they've kind of provided the equivalence of that support structure. And, and by the way, a lot of, I'd say 85, 90% plus of our early employees, meaning like hired in year one, are still with us oh, wow. and still senior members of the team. Our CFO, I probably got him on board you know, seven, eight months into signing the company. Our CTO, current CTO, same thing, seven, eight months. Our head of marketing brand, you know, four months into the company. And, and these people are still here because I had this sort of this SWAT team of amazing executives that I was able to get on board early. They provided me with that same amount of support. Now, all that being said, I think the difference is, I think when you have a co-founder, you have someone who really shoulders the burden with you right. like of the entire business, the investors, dynamics, all that. That I have to handle solo, which has its ups and downs, certainly. But, you know, I think I've gotten sort of used to it over the years. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you manage like your mental health? Because I imagine being a solo founder is quite lonely. I cook. What do you cook? Yeah, that's one of the things I do. I'm a horrible cook. Like I do not make anything that actually tastes even remotely good. But it's like a de-stressing thing for me. And I'll like, I'll actually look at a lot of recipes we post on Misfits or, you know, go to like food bloggers and, and things like that. And I'll actually like try to whip up whatever I can using my Misfits box. And I think I probably cook lunch every day and dinner six days a week. And I've done that wow. for a very long time, unless I'm traveling. So it's like a, it's a fun way for me to unwind and it de-stresses me. And then I also, I'm a very active person. So I like, you know, whether it's running or working out or biking or whatever it is, like I'm from what, what I found is the mental stimulation and, and burden that comes with running a high growth startup. Like I found that I need to balance that with like the same amount of physical work and simulation. So getting out and like working out a lot and, you know, all that kind of good stuff has been helpful for me. And I'm curious, so you guys made a pretty big acquisition last year. And so I'm definitely curious if you want to talk about that, because I don't know if you would say they're a direct competitor to you guys, but definitely falls under that category. So what was the decision process like there? Did you guys always think maybe that would happen? What were the signs? Just like walk me through what it was like to have that come to be. 
So we bought, I'd say like we were frenemies with this company for a while. That's probably the right word to use. But they were very much so competitors. Like in this category of, you know, ugly produce, misfits food, it was us and imperfect foods that were kind of like the primary players in the space. So we ended up acquiring them in October of last year. They came about in somewhat of a natural way. As you guys probably know, the market for raising capital externally for growth stage companies has been somewhat challenging over the past year and a half, two years. And so Imperfect was going to raise capital as they were going to go raise capital. We were introduced to their investors and we talked about it and we're like, hey, if you're going to raise capital, should we actually look at combining these two businesses? Because at the end of the day, we have a shared mission. We have a shared view of the world. And when it comes to sustainability and affordability, should these companies really be two separate companies competing forever? Or does it make more sense to put them together? And we very quickly landed on like the answer of like, hey, we should put these together because that's going to be the right move. And then it was really just a question of like structuring it the right way and getting the deal done. Yeah, because that was another thing like, okay, so you buy another company. How do you blend teams and leadership and decide like who stays, who doesn't? Like, how does that internal process work? In some ways, that's been the most challenging part of integrating these two companies. When we first put together their plan, it was like, okay, we have to combine warehouses. We have to combine assortments and make sure all that stuff gets done. And so that was what we focused on in the early days. The people side of this is a lot harder because, you know, you have like duplicate teams transparently, right? And so you have marketing team A, marketing team B, and you got to put them together. And most likely there's some overlap as well. And you have to part ways with some people. And how you do that both quickly and objectively is super hard. And I don't know, I don't know if we did it perfectly either. I don't think we did it perfectly. I think I'm sure there were some flaws in how we went about it. Ultimately, the view that I took was I need to pick a leader for every team, first and foremost. And so we ended up picking a group of leaders that were frankly a, a blend of misfits and imperfect leaders. A lot of folks, when they heard that we acquired Imperfect, they were like, okay, I assume you're just going to, you know, wipe out the leadership team at Imperfect and keep the leadership team at Misfits. In reality, both these companies were pretty large, like Imperfect and Misfits were roughly the same size when we bought them from a headcount perspective and all of that. So it would have been naive of me to be like, oh, I'm just going to wipe one side and keep the other. So I ended up making the decision to look at it a little bit more objectively and say, hey, who's the right leader for each one of these teams that can scale the combined company. And kind of I went team by team and, you know, did these mini interviews and tried to figure out who the right leader was for every role. There are some places, by the way, where teams didn't exist. And I created a new team because with a combined company, you needed a new team to exist. So we went through that exercise. And that was the first thing that we did on the people side, establish who the leadership team is. Then once we did that, kind of task the leadership team with then going and building their teams. And then they had to kind of go do that same exercise that I just described across the rest of their teams. It's hard because if you have a leadership team member from one side, are they going to really have context on the performance of folks who are on the other team? Probably not. Right. And so I think that's the hardest part. But we, we tried to like use prior performance reviews. We tried to use context from the other leader, all those things. But it was a very challenging to do. And then after all that's done, we went through layoffs, right? And, and so building the trust of the organization to be like, hey, we had to do all these hard things to make sure we have a steady state team now. Now we're kind of, we're, we're moving forward from this and we're one company. So we're no longer going to talk about imperfect versus misfits or vice versa. It's one company move forward. That took a while. I'd say that whole people process of the 11 months since the start of integration, that probably took like six months to do. And switching gears just a little bit, one thing I'm always curious about for startups like yourself that are so mission-driven, and not only, of course, it's a for-profit business, but you're trying to solve food waste, which is obviously a very important issue that 
is a huge problem in both the U.S. and beyond. How does that weigh on you that this company is doing more than, say, I truly always go on the show and crap on SaaS companies, which I don't mean to do. But if a marketing software doesn't work out, a marketing software doesn't work out. But food waste is obviously a heavier issue. Does that weigh on you at all that there's just more to it for the company to succeed? It does weigh on me that I think because what we're doing here, we're a for-profit company and we're trying to build a, a business that works. But I also feel like what we're doing, we have somewhat of a moral obligation to figure this out, to tackle food waste at scale, to help fix the sustainability problem that we have. And so I I do think there's some amount of pressure on, hey, we kind of have to succeed here because we're tackling such a huge problem in the ecosystem. And if we're not going to do it or able to do it, who else is? I definitely think it sort of weighs on us, on the entire team here in terms of like the gravitas of the situation and what we're trying to do. But I think what's helped is the ecosystem of sustainability focused and food waste focused companies over the past five years has grown tremendously. Hmm. We look at it and we're like, look, like we're not the only ones doing this. There are companies that are trying to do, it's a SaaS company, but like forecasting technology for grocery retailers. There's companies that are trying to figure out how to provide fertilizer that is more eco-friendly. There's companies that are trying to figure out how to provide cows with feed that will make them burp less because cow burps cause methane gas emissions. So people are tackling this from a variety of different angles. And I think it's just become front and center is such an important problem, which I think gives us conviction and hope that we will figure out a part of this problem. And there's a bunch of other companies that will figure out other parts. And sort of with a lot of that in mind and thinking about where you guys have gotten to at this point, where do you guys go from here? Do you expand categories? Do you see scaling to new markets? What is the future for the company? A big part of what we're going to do is category expansion. If you think about kind of the DNA of the company, we started off with produce, then we expanded into some non-produce items and meat and seafood, but we still have a very curated assortment compared to the vast majority of grocery stores. Yet there is food waste in all of these categories that we're not in. And so our hope is what we've done in produce, we can then go expand into every other grocery category because our goal is to be a sort of standalone grocery store online. And so I think we can essentially go and tackle food waste and go buy the the ugly produce of all these other categories and go build a full grocery store online. So category expansion is a huge part of it. I'd say geographic expansion, we are in every state in the U.S. today. We don't have any immediate plans to expand internationally. I think the U.S. is still going to be our core focus. So then it really becomes about sort of getting depth in the states that we're already in. And unfortunately, we are out of time. I feel like we could literally keep talking for another few hours. But Abby, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And that was our conversation with Abby. Dom, what'd you think? I loved it. I love talking to him. He was really fun. Again, I'm still stuck on the ugly vegetables thing. Oh, I know. I shop at the farmer's market a lot. So I feel like I'm always just buying ugly or different produce. So I like honestly forget sometimes that like that stuff just matters that much to some people. Yeah. And you know, it's actually really interesting when he was talking about how COVID helped his company, I don't know, explode in a way, because now that I think about it, I do all of my grocery shopping online, which is crazy because I live next door to two grocery stores and I just have them delivered to me. But I mean, that's, you know, sad, but, but he's, this is like such a new market in a sense. Like it's, so popular now. I know. It is interesting to think about because I know he said that only 13% of groceries are bought online, but looking into it, it's kind of hard to nail that number down of like exactly how much is bought online, how much isn't. I personally have never actually ordered like a whole cart of groceries online. I like the quick 
delivery services, which I'll do if I'm like lazy. Because I live like a 10 minute walk from a grocery store, so I'm not far. I also like to drive to Trader Joe's. I like grocery shopping, as was probably evident from my weird obsession with grocery store logistics. So I have not really ordered online, but I get that I'm probably more in the minority on that. No, yeah. You saying that makes me see, oh my gosh, I I get everything delivered. But now, I mean, this is totally a product that I would also look at. It makes sense to repurpose or like to just find a fit for all this produce. The experience of getting VC funding for this and going into credit card debt, which a lot of founders, I don't think founders have really opened up about how much debt it also costs to launch a company. So I was really happy that he was really open about that. For sure. And no, you're totally right. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other founders who have done similar things and done more of the personal debt route and some of those more types of scenarios that once they've grown, they've taken on VC funding, they maybe don't want to talk about publicly because it's like they can kind of ignore that that was like a step in the journey. I know. It's also like, oh my goodness, I need VC funding immediately to help me pay these bills. And that makes so much sense because it is so low margin, so hard to scale, like so expensive, which is why I thought it was interesting talking about the acquisition they made of Imperfect Foods and thinking about like the overall venture ecosystem this year. It's those capital intensive startups that are the ones that are struggling first and sort of running out of capital before others. So finding out that they really purchased them because Imperfect Foods investors came and were like, hi, these company needs to survive in some way. is something that was like interesting to hear that that's the real reason. And Probably something we're going to see a lot next year. Oh, yeah, I know, because I think it was last year we were covering this where, or I think you wrote an article saying like a a bunch of companies are probably just going to be acquired now because the market was really tough. And so when he was talking about that, I was like, oh, this is one of those companies that had to buy another company because the market is really tough. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a trend. And I really want to know what other types of companies are going to consolidate in this sense, because Mm -hmm. this is definitely going to be a trend that we're going to see. Right. Because of course, it's like, especially with what's going on with some of the antitrust stuff at the government level, it's going to be interesting to see who can consolidate and who tries to, but isn't allowed to. Because I feel like obviously these companies, sure, they're doing something very similar to each other, but you can, of course, argue in their space, like, are they going to be bigger than Whole Foods? Probably not, which isn't a bad thing for them as a business, but totally takes that like antitrust piece out of it in a way that other companies who come to this sort of decision or crossroad in 2024 are not going to have the luxury of. I know. And him describing the company as a frenemy is kind of hilarious. (laughs) That's like the best term because he's like, they did a lot of good education on this as well, but we want their customers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, what were your thoughts on him going into the process of integrating two teams? Because I was shocked he was kind of open and honest, or maybe I was just expecting a kind of like, there were a little bumps, but we all figured it out. I was really happy to hear that he was honest about how hard it was and how they had to go through layoffs. And the human process of a merger like this is always the hardest thing to accomplish. Definitely. I thought it was really fascinating when he said that they really took like a granular look at each team and was like, okay, is a Misfits person better to lead this team or is an Imperfect Foods person better to lead this team? Because I used to work at a media company that bought another media company and merged and they absolutely did not do that. And the parent company became the head of pretty much everything. And everyone who had been in like a really senior position at the company that it purchased were all let go or were essentially demoted. Like they didn't do that at all. They didn't go, oh, this person from the company you're acquiring may actually be a better fit than who we have. So it was interesting to hear that because that, of course, as you mentioned, they didn't do it 
perfectly by any means. I don't know if there is a way to integrate companies perfectly, but it sounds like they were much more thoughtful than, yeah, the one scenario like this that I've lived through. No, yeah. Every time you hear mergers, you think of it just being an absolute labor bloodbath. I've always wanted to hear the psychology behind it from a CEO founder perspective. Like, what are you thinking once you realize you have to lay off all of these people? And how do you navigate those emotions? No, I think he was very candid about it in a way that hopefully people going through this next year maybe can listen back on and see how someone else did it and can feel so honest about it. And you know, one thing we should mention is a lot of the ideas that when we we were talking about his former startup ideas and how he kind of eventually found his way here, a lot of those startup ideas were not necessarily bad. No, no, because especially like the buying on social media. I mean, I don't buy directly on social media, but like, man, like Instagram is good at serving you ads of stuff that you really just do want to buy. And it's like, yeah, I'll take the extra step and go to the site and buy it. But people would probably love that. Maybe not in the format he was describing, but like they were ahead of their time as far as, oh, people are going to want to shop directly on social media because like that's absolutely true. But I think it's a good lesson for founders. You know, all those ideas that you have, they're not necessarily bad. Maybe just, you know, maybe you weren't the right one to execute them, but always keep going because it might lead you to the golden idea, which is for him, this. Or even like when they talked about essentially what Stitch Fix does now, if they had kept with that, like they probably would have been Stitch Fix because that did prove to work. And that now is a company that, yeah, they've had their ups and downs over the last few years, but I mean, people use them. So there definitely was that demand. They maybe just didn't. And he mentioned this too. They maybe just didn't stick with it long enough to see it through. Yeah. Knowing when to pivot and when maybe something isn't your battle to fight, you know, is always... A lesson in being a founder. Because once again, it led him here. No, this one was full of lessons. Full of lessons. Produce are not ugly. They're just different. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>